You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. A leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions, and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest today is Keisha Jordan, President and CEO of the Children's Scholarship Fund, Philadelphia, a not-for-profit organization that provides kindergarten through eighth grade scholarships for children who live in neighborhoods with low-performing schools so they can attend the school of their choice. So with that, Keisha, welcome to the program. Thank you, Laura. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, tell us a little bit more about Children's Scholarship Fund. What is your 30-second elevator pitch? At Children's Scholarship Fund, we help families to achieve the economic and social success that they're looking for for their children in their future. And we do that by providing kindergarten through eighth grade tuition scholarships of up to $3,200 per year, up to three kids in a family, for families who live in some of Philadelphia's lowest performing school neighborhoods to be able to choose the school for their child. And they make these choices from 160 different partner schools based on where they believe that their child can have the most academic success, can grow the most personally and in their school careers. So we really give parents the power, despite not having the ability to pay tuition themselves, to choose the school that's going to be best for their child. That's so important. And you're now Children's Scholarship Fund, of course, you're running the Philadelphia regional chapter, but this is part of a larger national organization, right? So it's not just for so anybody out there, no matter where you live, check out to see what opportunities there might be for your families or your friends and neighbors as well. Yes? Absolutely. We are part of a national network of Children's Scholarship Fund affiliates all over the country, providing scholarships to students. And we've been around for 20 years. And we both know as working moms how important our kids' schools are. We've made a lot of effort into making sure that our kids are attending the schools that will serve them the best. And so I think it's beautiful that you are providing that opportunity for other families whose local resources may not be able to do that. Absolutely. It's the number one decision we make as parents, right? How important is it to choose the right educational environment for our kids? And we both have multiple kids. We know that not every school is right for every child. So to be able to make that choice regardless of where you live and your income is really what we're providing to families in the Philadelphia region. Love it. Access for all. So with all of that, what's your favorite part of your job and why? Laura, I really love giving other parents like me the opportunity that they might not otherwise have to select their school. It's so important to me. We just said this is one of the most important decisions that families make. And I just can't imagine Well, I do imagine, I try to imagine what it's like to not be able to choose to live in a neighborhood where your school is low performing or unsafe or doesn't fit in with your family's cultural values and to feel like you have no other option. And even when I started in the school choice and education field more than 20 years ago when I was not a parent, I knew that I wanted to give other parents that ability because I knew what my parents had done for me, the choices that they made to give me the best. That's really what we all want is the best for our kids. So 
my favorite part of my role is being able to give other parents like me and you know other moms, two thirds of our families are led by a single parent, right? A lot of single moms, giving them that opportunity to set their children up for success, no matter what their household income. Beautiful, beautiful. And in doing this successfully, what's one of the big issues of the day? And how do you have to adjust your approach when you're talking to different key stakeholder groups about it? So now that we've been around for 20 years, Laura, we've had to decide what's next. You know, we don't want to just keep doing the same thing. So what we've discovered is that we can really improve our program and serve more students. So that's what I'm talking to our parents about and starting to talk to our donors and school communities about. We recognize that if a child stays in our program through eighth grade, they're more likely to experience all the outcomes we're seeing. They're outperforming their peers academically. They're going to the high schools of choice, the competitive schools in Philadelphia. They're graduating high school on time, and they're going to college at rates much higher than their peers locally and nationally. And we want more of that for students. So we're talking about now is not just can we give out a lot of scholarships, but can we keep students in our program through eighth grade, plus add more students so that they can achieve those outcomes. And we're going to be doing that. I'm sharing a little kind of secret we're going to be revealing in a couple of weeks by eliminating the current four-year limit on our scholarships. So now Mm -hmm. families who receive a scholarship from us can be confident that they'll have it through eighth grade and have that relief of knowing that they're going to get help with tuition and their child can stay in the school they chose through eighth grade. So I'm changing the language from more scholarships, more scholarships to more impact now that we know that our program is successful. And Laura, that's going to take us from serving 5,400 students a year now to 7,600 students a year within the next five years. That's amazing. That's amazing. Almost a 50% increase. So if I'm understanding correctly, it was there was an originally a four-year limit on the participation for any particular child, but then that would limit in some ways the number of parents who would apply, figuring, well, if I get it for kindergarten, elementary school, then what am I supposed to do? Just dump them back into, you know, why bother getting their hopes up and giving them something good that I'm just going to take away if I can't fund it for myself? So if they now know that it won't get cut off at a certain point, more parents are likely to apply in hopes of having that extended opportunity for their child. Am I understanding that correctly? You're absolutely right. When we first started, we were not confident in our fundraising ability. We wanted to give as many scholarships to as many students as possible. But now that we have a great network of donors, a state program that supports us, we feel much more confident in opening it up. Because what we found, Laura, was that Families could reapply after four years, but they weren't because they didn't know they could reapply. They thought, I won't get that lucky and win the lottery again. Or one parent said, like, I don't want to take away that privilege from another family, right? Mm -hmm. I got it for four years. I want other families to get it for four years. It's a false barrier. And we want families to be able to keep their kids in their schools, safely learning, achieving those outcomes through eighth grade. So we think that'll make a huge difference in retaining our students. That's awesome. And now I would imagine that a couple of the different stakeholder groups that you're referring to, the families, of course, are one, which would be a pretty easy sell. It's a, hey, guess what? No more limits. You can keep going on for the full eight or or nine years if it's K through eight. That that would be a pretty easy sell, as it were. What about for your donors or other organizers, other partner groups? How do you have to message this to them? 
Well, I need to share with them, and I've, I've started doing that, that in order to achieve these great outcomes and increase them, we need to do more fundraising. So you know, we're launching a campaign because it's just going to cost more, right? We need to be able to provide more scholarships to students and retain them. So my language is changing now that we've just celebrated 20 years from we need to give scholarships. This is why families need it too. We know our program works. Help us to keep more students in the program and to achieve those outcomes. Because when you got something that works, you got to replicate it. You've got to expand it. And so that's the kind of shift in language. It does mean we need more help. And, you know, I'm saying that. And that's a professional challenge for me. I've got to raise more money than I've ever raised before in my career. And I need lots of help. So that is the language now that I've had to change and, and use with our supporters. Yeah, I would imagine you. there's some statistics that you may use or other data to demonstrate the correlation between the continuity and the success of the child. That's the importance for there. Yeah, we've got our own internal data. And then there's also external data that says when a child receives a scholarship in eighth grade, an under-resourced child, they're much more likely to go to college and be successful in life in the way that their family defines that for them. So I am using lots of data, yes, to be able to communicate the impact and the possibilities that our donors can join us in achieving. And it's amazing that you can see a correlation between an eighth grade scholarship and college likelihood, et cetera, that that's even with a five-year gap or four-year gap in between, that there is still that kind of connection. So fabulous data. Now, in all of the different groups that you've had to address, in, whether it's in your current role or in the past, who is or who was the toughest audience that you ever had to connect with? I would definitely say during my time at Girl Scouts of Eastern Pennsylvania, where I was chief people officer, I'm a, a Girl Scout and my girls were Girl Scouts. I was a volunteer, but also had the opportunity to work there. One of the toughest groups that I've ever worked with, and I say tough with all respect for their dedication, is Girl Scout volunteers. These are women who have been Girl Scouts, who received a great benefit from being in Girl Scouts. It's in their heart. And then now they are giving their time as volunteers. And it takes a lot of time to be a Girl Scout leader, a Girl Scout volunteer. They're dedicated. They believe in the organization. And they want for the girls in their leadership, in their troop, to have the same positive experience that they have. And so what I found is that as a staff member who was leading volunteer engagement and training, I had to build up credibility with this group of very dedicated women. They wanted to know that I was a Girl Scout or respected Girl Scouts and what it provided, that I was as dedicated to their development and the development of the girls as they were, and that I was prepared to do whatever I could as a staff member and leader to get them the resources that they need to be good leaders. So lots of great learnings from that experience. It sounds like they needed to know that you loved it, that you loved the Girl Scouts as much as they did. It was about the passion and that you shared it. Because if you didn't share the passion, nothing else mattered. Exactly. They wanted to know that I had that same passion that anyone who was working for Girl Scouts did, does because they are volunteering, right? They're giving their time on top of their work. And so you had to make that connection and had to make sure that they knew that you were there to support them, provide the resources that they needed. Because, you know, similar to teaching, being in front of a group of girls, leading them for, you know, a long period of time and helping them to develop is not an easy job and you need a lot of resources and support. So I respected them so much 
but I definitely had a learning curve to be able to serve and support them in the way that they needed. It's almost like I think a lot of people listening may feel like, you know, I guess you could say that's a problem, but it's kind of a good problem to have that everybody you're working for, volunteers and otherwise, are so passionate about what you're doing that that's the challenge. That's that's the good problem to have. That's the first world problem of the work world, so to speak. It is. It is. And they're, they're amazing. I mean, they make Girl Scouts what it is and they provide a tremendous experience for thousands of girls. So, you know, I, I have the utmost, well, really all over the, the yeah. millions, right? And it's an international organization. So, so much respect there. And, and I thank them for what I learned. No doubt. No doubt. They've got the same thanks to share with you in return. Now, what's an important lesson that you learned when you first went from being an individual contributor to leading your first team? So I was very young when I led my first team. I was just out of law school and made the switch to nonprofit. And I led a very small nonprofit called the Philadelphia Black Alliance for Educational Options. And it was established in Philadelphia at a time, this was around 1999, when there were very few options to low-performing schools. There was just a handful of charters, no scholarships, and families needed to understand what their options were if they wanted something different for their children. So it started out with just me kind of going out and and sharing information with families and then eventually added some additional staff members. The challenge for me was just not having been a manager before and trying to build a team and then trying to build a team on a very small budget with very little resources, doing something that was so important. So as I gained new staff members in We all had to do way more that was in our job description. We know this about small businesses and nonprofits. I had to make sure that they felt really valued because I didn't want to lose them. And I recognized that from the start. We each came with experiences and expertise in different areas. And we needed to all understand the value that we brought to the table and work together as a team. I also had to make sure to motivate my team because, again, we were so small. We were on a small budget, we really needed to be motivated and understand the impact that we were having. So I tried as much as I could to expose all members of our team to the work that we were doing, going into schools, seeing the impact of what happens when families are really happy and satisfied with their kids' academic experience. So, you know, I really learned that in order to manage a small organization like this, you really got to pick the right people, right? Get them in place, show them their value, really listen to them and help them to make a connection to the really important work that they were doing. It's interesting because I think that what you're sharing in many ways, yes, it certainly is mission critical to a nonprofit when it is a smaller organization in particular. And certainly when there are volunteers, you didn't mention them being volunteers, it was your staff, but even harder when it's just volunteers or with many, I shouldn't say just because they're certainly not motivated by financial incentives. So it's really like, make me happy to be here or I'm leaving. But I think it's also the notion of acknowledging your team and motivating the team is something where you can be a Fortune 100 company or a local nonprofit. You've got hundreds of staff, but they could have 10 people in the organization. And it's still all about motivating your team. And I will share that I have heard from people running some of the largest corporations Often the teams are saying, we don't have a budget. We have too much to do. My people are overloaded. We need more staff, but we don't have it this year. The budget has just been set for the next two years. And I'll have to wait until after that time period before I can pitch 
to get the money to bring in more staff. It's like, wow, okay. So those are challenges that no matter what kind of organization you're in, I think is something that's universal. So yeah, always there. Definitely. Now, Keisha, this brings us to the listener 24-hour influence challenge. This is your opportunity to talk directly to our audience and challenge them to take one step that they can complete within 24 hours to have more influence. How would you like to challenge our listeners today? I would love to challenge your listeners to take some time to be self-reflective, to think about what issues you're really passionate about. Are you passionate about and interested in education? Is the plight of homelessness in our city and region something that's really important to you? What issue do you connect with? And do some research, find out what organizations in your community are addressing those issues and call them because you know what? They need you. We in the nonprofit sector need volunteers. We need board members to be leaders in our organizations to help us achieve our missions. And anyone can do it. Anyone can be a board member. You don't have to have a lot of experience as a board member. Some folks might think, you know, I've never done this before. I don't know. It's so important that you get involved. And I've worked in nonprofits almost my whole career, but even I went through a process where I I said, I have some time. I want to be on a board. And I did some research. I found a school, community partnership school that I'd been familiar with that I really liked. I was like, I would love to be involved with that school. Laura, I emailed. I just emailed the CEO. I was like, do you have a need for board members? Are you looking? What are you looking for? He emailed me back. I went through the process and became a volunteer, a board member there. So yeah, I want everyone to recognize that they have strengths and skills they might not even know they have or might not think are valuable that would be so valuable to an organization. And they could have so much impact and influence in their communities by joining a board or volunteering. Yeah. So, and I want to reinforce what Keisha just said, everybody out there, that I think for those who've never joined a board before, it can seem intimidating then there is the fear of, oh, but am I qualified? And how, what do I have to do? And what kind of experience do I need? And for especially more your local nonprofits, you need passion and you need to be willing to donate your time and start from there and follow through and just see it. Now, some of them will say, yes, we're looking for board members. Some may say, yes, but people need to start as a volunteer and then be a committee member and then move their way up before they get. And that's fine. But the point is, start the process and ask. Just get the ball rolling. There's there's no, don't worry about rejection, et cetera. There's, this is not a life or death situation, but start with that list. So where it, within all of that, what I heard, Keisha, is your challenge for the 24-hour portion of the challenge is just make that list. What are the issues that are your passion points, kids, animals, environment, whatever it happens to be, sports, something else? What's your passion? And then Google or something, search around to see what's local to you and find out how to get in touch with them. Reach out to them. That's the challenge, Laura. You got it. All right. I love it. Yes, everybody get involved. Look at local community board membership. Now, we've talked about a lot of successes that you've had. Let's talk about mistakes. Share a communication-related mistake that you made at some point. And if you could have had a do-over, what would it sound like? Laura, I sent an email one time. <laughs> Uh-oh. That's kind of like the modern version of it was a dark and stormy night. You just know there's something foreboding coming. Okay, I sent an email. All right, we're ready. I sent an email to an important external partner, and my intentions were really good in the email. 
but the impact was not great. The impact of my words and, and what I said in that email were hurtful and caused offense to that partner. So they let me know. I, I found out about it. And of course, immediately, I wanted to apologize. And I not only wanted to apologize, but I wanted for that person to understand that I didn't mean to offend. I didn't mean to harm feelings. And so my email started out with an apology, but then it went on and on and on with over explanations of why I said what I said, what I actually meant, the events that led up to this. And it ended up being pretty lengthy. And in reflecting back, more about me, I think, <laughs> than about that person and their feelings. So I did have a really good idea to run it past my mentor first. And so I sent it to the mentor, what do you think of this? And my mentor sent it back. I can still see it crossing out pretty much everything <laughs> except for the apology. <laughs> and the message was, take responsibility for what you did. You didn't mean it, yes. But just say you're sorry. That's what the person needs to hear. They need to say that you're sorry and that they're valuable to you and that you would like to repair the relationship. And so I took that advice. I, you know, I took out all my explanations, even though it, it hurt to not be able to say why I said what I said. And I sent the more simple email and the impact was positive. We were able to move on. So that was an important lesson for me, both personally and professionally as a communicator to, you know, just take responsibility, be accountable, say you're sorry, think about the other person and how your words might have impacted them. If they want to hear your explanation, they'll ask, but just, you know, start with that simple, I'm sorry, and I want to do better. Sure, sure. And one of the greatest challenges I find, whether it's email or in person or, or however, when there is that having caused unintentional hurt, even with best intentions, most of us feel like, well, I certainly want to apologize for the harm that I never wanted to cause, but I need you to know that I didn't mean I need you to know that my intention was good, that I'm not a bad person. I need to know that my reputation has been restored and that I'm safe to accept responsibility because otherwise, if I accept the responsibility for the harm, then am I admitting that I'm a bad person somehow? Or am I, am I going to, is it going to go on the record? You know, there's that, there's a safety element in accepting blame for having hurt someone else. And I think it, nowadays we've gotten very sensitive to all of that, which can make it really hard for people to not want to over explain the intent. So, you know, for whatever it's worth recognizing that those two sides, maybe it's that to be able to give the apology first and just acknowledge this was unintentionally caused harm, own the harm that you caused, and then ask for the forgiveness or request acknowledgement that at least the intention was not that. I think people will be able to acknowledge your intention after you've acknowledged that you hurt them intentionally or otherwise. So it's the chicken or the egg in some ways, but to the extent that harm was done, the apology needs to go first, and that can be a hard pill to swallow. Yes, absolutely. And you're making me think another lesson in this might be choose what conversations you have through email and which you have by phone or in person because you know, your tone can be better communicated in the moment in person or by voice 
then perhaps it can be in writing. So I, I think that's another takeaway from that mistake. It is. And boy, that's a whole topic we could do an entire episode on just how to decide what to send via email versus what to do in person. And there's certainly pros and cons to both, but to not just hide behind the email because the conversation is uncomfortable. If it is in particular about acknowledging harm, your hurt, et cetera, sometimes those are the things that need to be done in person. You know, to have that face-to-face connection, there's an integrity to being willing to do that, which is not always easy to do. It's a lot easier to fire off an asynchronous email, hit send and, and kind of run off. But as I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And those are certainly topics that we'll have to address at another time in, in greater depth. Now, what is an approach that you've used to address an accountability issue with someone on your team? So that's another hard topic, the accountability piece. Yes. I think I go back to mistakes I've made that I've learned from on that topic. When I was a, I mentioned that I became a nonprofit leader when I was in my 20s without any training or experience and made mistakes that I've learned from. But, you know, one of the mistakes that I I did make was not directly addressing performance issues and not having the skills and maybe the experience to hold someone accountable for what they're responsible for and to do that directly. So yeah, I'm thinking of a, a time where I had a, a poor performer early in my career at a very small nonprofit, and I didn't have the confidence to bring it up directly the way that I would now. And so, you know, what I did, Laura, and I'm sorry for everyone who had experienced my man <laughs> back in those days, I had a, a general conversation with the full staff, with folks who were performing well, but I, you know, I went into all of the things I was concerned about on this one person and, you know, in a way kind of punished everybody, even though they weren't all strong performers. And Mm -hmm. so thankfully I've learned from that and come a long way. And so now I know it's really important to have those critical conversations with folks on my team about performance and to do so in the moment, to do so directly with them, to do so privately. And, you know, not in a group to cause embarrassment. And when you do that and you're comfortable in doing that, which I now am, you end up helping that employee, right? Whether it's helping them to be a better performer themselves on your team to have a better relationship with them. Or sometimes it might mean the beginning of coaching them out, right? Because not everyone is, every job is not the right fit for everyone. But I did learn that it is just really important to be able to have the tough conversation. It's fun as a manager to give the encouragement and the support, but you're really doing a disservice to your team and your individual employees if you can't address issues as they come up with them directly. 100% agree. And they're not easy to have, but they are those important ones. And I think often we think we are being nice in generally referencing to the group, you know, the behaviors that we want to encourage and that we want to discourage. But the irony is that when it's really one person that we're hoping is going to pick up on that message, that tends to be the person who's oblivious and doesn't realize that they're the one that you're really talking to. And everybody else totally internalizes it and goes, why am I being chastised? But I didn't do that. But I'm, I'm doing all the things that you want me to do. So everybody else takes it personally, except the one person you're actually talking to. Do you ever find that? You're so right, Laura. <laughs> and that happened in that incident, actually. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> what happened? Oh, those are the times I don't want to be right. Oh, goodness. 
<laughs> and then you end up having to have the, the one-on-one with them anyway. So it's just... Right, right. And they did end up leaving. You know, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But yeah, so it's, you know, again, I apologize to everyone who I managed early on as I was learning. But for everyone who I've managed in the recent years, hopefully you've seen the benefit of all the mistakes I've made, right? <laughs> yes, yes. And I think that's also something universal where so many of us, when we've had our first leadership role of whatever sort. I mean, for me, it was teaching. I, mean, I was 23 years old out of college and teaching my first class of element. I, I wish I could go back to that group of kids and just apologize because I God, oh my gosh, I hope they have all ended up somewhere positive and I didn't all de- I was a crazy person at that point. I had no idea. You try really hard, you know, you want, but goodness, if I knew then what I know now. All right. So then what about this whole hybrid world that we now find ourselves in as we move into an increasingly hybrid workplace? What's one of either your main concerns or little pet peeves about working in the virtual slash hybrid space? And what would be your ideal solution? I think we've all gotten used to, and understandably so, prioritizing our personal lives, our personal comfort, and our ability to work from home and have that flexibility, right? So Mm -hmm. all that was needed during COVID when everybody had to go home. You know, I, at Children's Scholarship Fund, we're a small organization. People didn't have laptops, they had desktops. So they were at home trying to share computers with their children who are also working from home. I mean, you know, so as managers, we've had to be empathetic and we've been in those situations ourselves. You know, I was in that situation myself with trying to manage my kids' learning. But because it lasted so long, I'm detecting that we've kind of made this switch mentally to, sometimes prioritizing all of those kind of personal comforts, the things we need to do. So, you know, the way it it might play out is, you know, I have to stay home today. I can't come in the office today for our hybrid model because I've got a package coming, (laughs) right? Or, you know, and I'll, I'll include myself. I mean, going back to managing your children and all the things that they do when you're not working from home anymore is tough, right? Because we're, we're used to asking for the flexibility and being able to take off a little bit to run them here and there. So it's affected all of us and it's been really needed, but we've got to now get back to those days of 2019 <laughs> that seemed so long ago when nine to five was all about work and you had to make other arrangements, right? Get a neighbor to get the package and so it's delicate. And, and I say that with empathy and sensitivity and with being in the situation myself. But in order to get back to being in person, whether it's, you know, in a hybrid scenario like we're in at Children's Scholarship Fund or going back full time, we do need for ourselves and then to encourage our staff members to get back to that mindset of being in the office and prioritizing our work responsibilities during that time. I think there's some, I would agree, there seems to be some confusion sometimes between what is a priority versus a preference. And when you've got so many people on a team who all have preferences of where they'd rather be on which days because it's more convenient, because it's easier versus, no, you know what, there's enough people, we need to find a time that we can all meet, whether it's in person or or virtual or otherwise. But yeah, maybe it is time to find someone else who can pick up that package for you or do a carpool. I'll pick up your kid tomorrow, you pick up mine Thursday or something along those lines. We forget to do those things because we're used to just being able to play 52 pickup with the hours in our day when we're all home all the time. But yeah, I can see where that would be harder when running a larger team to convince people to not put the comfort and the preferences first. Yes. 
You've got it. Exactly. Understood. Understood. So what about in, in the organization, if somebody wanted to move up into a senior leadership role, aside from demonstrating their technical expertise, what's one other skill, one specific skill that they'd have to demonstrate to you and why? I think that interpersonal skills are just as important as the technical skills. You could be so successful in your field and expert in your field, but if you can't relate to your coworkers, to the people you manage, if you can't manage up effectively, you're just not going to be successful because those relational pieces are still so important in our work. So one example that I I think about is being able to manage sideways or cross-manage, right, you might say. So when we have a project that's really important to us and is a high priority to us and to our supervisor manager, we might need the help of other people. We need to collaborate, but they've also got their own priorities and, you know, their, their marching orders and what's most important for their role. So to be able to manage across teams with someone who is not your manager, but when you need something from that person, I think that's, it can be a difficult skill, right? But it's also really important to be able to show that colleague that what you need from them is not their priority, perhaps, but so important organizationally, or maybe you might be able to help them another time or in that moment, you know, maybe there's some connectivity that you can find. But I think that's really important. You still got to be able, no matter what your skill, to be able to work well within a team and have good relationships, have good working relationships. That's got to be a part of being eligible for promotion and, and longevity in an organization. Yes, yes. The managing sideways, along with managing up and managing down. A lot of people don't realize that that is a skill unto itself, really. It is. Now, finally, let's talk about culture. Peter Drucker is known for having famously said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. (laughs) So what's a communication pattern that you observed that has had a really big cultural impact on an organization, for better or for worse? What comes to mind for me is listening, really listening to our coworkers, to people we serve or our customers. We all use the term inclusivity and having, we want to have an inclusive culture, right? And I can't imagine too many organizations or companies that don't have that as a cultural value. But how can we be inclusive if we don't listen to all of the perspectives that exist in an organization? It's especially important over the last couple of years to be able to listen to the perspectives of folks who are within our circle. And and I'll just say for my organization, staff members, I mentioned some of the challenges that we have, right, during the rioting that occurred after the murder of George Floyd. Many of my staff members lived in the neighborhoods where this was occurring, and they couldn't just come to work unaffected each day. We had to have conversations about it, talk about how they're doing. The families we serve were heavily impacted by COVID, 73% lost jobs or income, and they couldn't pay their tuition. We had to figure out how to help them even further. So I think you got to really listen in order to maintain the culture that you want to have. You know, I, I learned that lesson the hard way in my career a little earlier on, Laura, where as part of the management team, we created a new policy for our customers, those who we were serving, without asking for any input. 
And so the policy we thought was going to be beneficial for them, but I remember to this day presenting the new policy and it was on a, you know, it was before COVID, but it was on a, a video conference. And as we were presenting this policy, the chat just blew up with pushback against this policy and you didn't ask us and a lot of hurt feelings that were happening as a result of this decision that we made without getting input from those who would be affected. And so we weren't really being an inclusive organization, right? It was making those types of changes. So, you know, I had to just stop the presentation and recognize that this is not having the impact that we intended and then go back to the drawing board and involve those who were going to be affected and impacted by the policy, listen to them, understand what they would need to be successful, and then revise the policy and come back and roll it out again with that input. And it went across much better (laughs) the second time after really listening. So that's what I would say is to be an inclusive, have an inclusive culture that values not only your staff, but the people you serve or your customers, you've really got to be able to listen. 100%. And if more, yeah, I'll leave it at that. 100%. The listening is a piece and taking stakeholder opinion into account when creating those kinds of policies. That's where buy-in comes from. That's when people feel like they've been heard, they're going to accept a lot more. Look, when what's the expression? I think it was Daniela Vare who said that diplomacy or tact is the ability to let someone else have your way. So, you know, when when they recognize that something you've come up with is their idea, or at least they think that it is, or they see that part of what is in there did come from them, they're much more willing to accept it. So it's a universal lesson for everybody. Keisha, how can people learn more about you and Children's Scholarship Fund? The best way to learn about us is to visit our website, which is at csfphiladelphia.org. That's where you can see our contact information, our social media handles. We've got upcoming news and events. Would love for folks to come out in a few weeks. As I said, we're going to share some exciting news and there'll be information about that on our website for families or for listeners, families who you know, who would like to send their children to a tuition-based school, but it's not affordable. Send them to our website. They'll be able to quickly see if they're eligible. It's a fast, easy process to apply for our scholarships. And then they will find out in either December or March if they've received a scholarship. So that's really the best way to connect with us. And for somebody who may not be in the greater Philadelphia region, is there a, what's the website for people who want to see what's available in their neighborhoods? Yeah, so the best way to do that is to go to the Children's Scholarship Fund's national site. So if you Google Children's Scholarship Fund, they're located in New York. And right on their website, they do have a list of all of the affiliates. So you'll be able to quickly see if there is an affiliate. And they're not all named Children's Scholarship Fund. There are other scholarship programs that go under the the umbrella. So that's the best way to find out. And every program is going to be a little different. So see what's happening in your community. But there are opportunities out there for so many children. So hopefully if you know of anybody, you meaning you listeners out there, happen to know of anybody who might appreciate a little bit of help in this area because their current schools are not meeting the needs of their children. By all means, do take Keisha up on this invitation to look and see what resources are available for you or for them and for those families, those kids. Thank you so much for joining us today, Keisha. Thank you for inviting me and for this great conversation, Laura. 
And thank you to all the listeners out there for tuning in as always. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't yet done so, so that you never miss an episode. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or your platform of choice so we can help even more people increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And finally, if you want to download my free guide to equipment recommendations for better virtual influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sokola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for leaders who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.